Hey everybody, this is Richie from the Metal Cell Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Yurt to the show. I've got Stephen, I've got Boz, and I've got Andrew or Bushy, which, which would you prefer? Bushy, what? Bushy, okay. And my co-host Howard as well. Thanks everybody for joining me tonight. And we've got a good few things to cover. Uh, the most important one is your upcoming release, which is Upgrade to Obsolete. Uh, congratulations on it, and thanks for sending me the promo. Um, I'm absolutely blown away by it, really. It's, it's a fantastic piece of music. And so we're going to just maybe cover that. And for fans that don't know too much of the band that followed the show, we might go into a brief history of your band as well, if that's cool. All good. Yeah. Excellent stuff, lads. So is it true that you started out in 2006 as a side project to other bands? Or? Yeah. Okay. So um, we my, might talk about that. Myself and Andy were playing in a band called Estelle at the time. And I think Gandhi and Boz had been in a band called The Steam Pig for about 10 years. So uh, we, we'd spoken about playing prog, basically, kind of playing, you know, fancy heavy metal at some point. So... Andy and Boz, if I remember correctly, kind of started putting pieces together and asked me to play drums. And that's, yeah, so it, it ran alongside Estelle for about six years. I know there are various bits we've done, but uh, yeah, 2006 would be correct. Hmm. Cool. And Boz, were you always a bass player? Yeah, pretty much. I've been playing the bass. Well, I've owned the bass for since about 89. So, oh. um, yeah, pretty much always been a bass player. See, you know, when I was kind of growing up and around people who were playing in teenage bands, nobody played the bass. And, mm. um, you know, everybody was a bedroom guitarist. They all wanted to be Kirk Hammett or whoever. And, um, you know, those weren't my people. My guys were kind of like Philip Lynott and Joe Wobble and... T.D. Ramon and um, they're all bass players, you know? So, yeah. uh, Lemmy, of course. And um, so it just seemed easy, you know, four strings, how difficult can it be? Um, of course, you learn the hard way when um, when you start doing it, that if you want to do anything that's in any way interesting, it does get difficult quite quickly, you know? Um, and when did you jump to five string? when we started doing Yurt, probably maybe the first, it had been in my mind, but the first um, few practices I probably played Andy's four string um, because the one that I was playing, I had been playing previously, had basically ground to a halt. It was up on, I think it was probably up on bricks at that stage. But um, <laughs> yeah, jumping to a five string, it just seemed like a... a um, it was like it seemed like a novelty thing to do, but um, also it just kind of suits. I'm kind of untrained, so it kind of suits the way I play the bass, um, and it worked out really, really well for me. You know, so, yeah, it's really cool to think that you know you guys have been going since the late '80s and into the '90s and kind of been through it all. Really, when you think about it, but um. What struck me about listening to the to the link that Richie sent me is is the it's the sort it's really enthusiastic, and uh, I was quite shocked to re- to see that you'd been going back so far in bands like Frost and Ogre. I remember seeing Ogre and Sally Long's about twenty odd years ago, and it's great to see 
an album come towards you from a bunch of guys who have obviously been doing this for a very fucking long time? Because it must be a grind. How do you keep it interesting? How do you um, keep that fire burning? How do you keep that enthusiasm going? Well, just to address the point there, those bands, Frost and Ogre, Ogre were um, friends of mine from when I was growing up. They had previously been the band called Frost. I had nothing to do with that. Um, mm. They would be a little bit older than me, but, um, you know, our kind of world, kind of early 90s by the time we were kind of out playing gigs or whatever. Um, in terms of enthusiasm, I don't know, whatever interests, whatever drives people to play music. I mean, the interest is still there. We know a lot of people who have sort of been around in our time doing it, who've kind of dropped off for whatever reason, you know, families and work and moving and all that sort of thing. But um, I don't know, is there, I don't know, don't really analyse whether there's a specific reason why we seem to be, uh, why we have that longevity, you know? Would friendship come into it by any chance? It, it would for me. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd be very comfortable with Boz and Bushy, like because we played together for so long. We we know we know each other inside out musically. I think at this stage, and it's just it's always been we've always seen it as long term. I think it, there's never been kind of a rush to get anywhere with anything. It's we we'll, we take our time, we do what we do, and we'll get to where we want to be eventually. So I think that's mm-hmm. the slower pace might help as well. It might. We're always working on something. We're always moving forward, but it's um, that might help. I think in a way to keep your keep your enthusiasm going. So I, I see myself as a lifer in music. Like I'm playing three bands, and that's what I do. You know, like it's just yeah. I can't see myself ever not playing music. You know. And Bushy, would you ever have thought about extending your to a, an extra member? No way. It's difficult enough with three of us, you know, <laughs> without, a, without bringing, having to teach this nonsense to someone else. Oh, well, yeah. So I'll joke on the side. No, we think the three of us, it works. Uh, it works very well. We've got kind of a weird little chemistry, you know. And yeah. having played in other bands with Andy, where we've added people and taken people away, you're always kind of better with the core. You, you'll always come back to the three or four people, you know? So I, I, I think someone else, said, like a second guitarist, just make it busy. Uh, you know, we don't need another member. Yeah. At the very beginning, we had um, considered bring, trying to bring somebody in on keyboards, since <laughs> that sort of thing. But we didn't know anybody that, you know, anybody who we really wanted who we could tolerate being in a room with, you know, it, it just made sense to kind of stick as like a power trio and uh, yeah. work from there, you know, it's enough. Mm. Like I said, it's enough to manage people and kind of corral everybody into the same room. I mean, that can be difficult, you know? Well, Howard, you know all about that playing in the Magna P in a, a five yeah, piece. And it is what it is. You just have to keep, like Les was saying, you keep moving forward. But I think when you, it, as the case is with the Magna P, we've been playing together in various forms for 25 years now, you know, and I think there is an element of when you play with someone that long, you definitely reveal parts of yourself to them and it's reciprocated. And that can be a difficult thing to to open up to somebody else to come in and have a go at. Mm. You know, so there, you know, longevity does does require help from like-minded people, I think. Yeah, and I, I think agree with that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you kind of, 
I think, certainly for me, Annie, I can't speak to yours, but I'm pretty sure it's the same. Coming from the background we come from, which is kind of like a punk underground type thing, the goal is never to be like a big band or to, you know, be like a successful band or have the big supports. And I think a lot of bands get bogged down in that. And once you're bogged down in that, you're kind of compromised because mm-hmm. it, you start, if you're thinking, I have to do this to be a success, right? You know, we do believe that thing. If you can get into a room and make the music and record the music and release the music, that's a success in itself. You know, yes. whereas now we think there's an awful lot of uh, people think, oh, if we get the good support or if we... Yeah, get, yeah. You know what I mean? It, that, that's, like, it's a hole because you're just chasing a thing then rather than making... I, mean, throat, I think you're very much goal-orientated as a, as a young person. You see you see the, the magic on TV of rock bands living the lifestyle hmm. or whatever it might be. And you think in some part of yourself that that's what you're aspiring to be. But I think there is a turning point that you get to, isn't there, where you realise... That it's all just a big fucking lie, and if you're going to do yeah. this, it's mm. going to be fucking hard. There's not much reward in terms of yeah success, I guess. Well, it's, it's weird. Like, it's you know, success is creating with your friends and enjoying it. You know. Yeah, I think from a, from an early point, we um, I guess because it was a kind of like a side project because everybody was doing other bands when the when the art started, and um, we were able to kind of separate out that kind of ambition that people generally associate with being with a band, you know, doing that sort of thing, like playing out a lot and, you know, chasing this gig and that gig and, you know, working on profile and all the rest, just purely, purely concentrated on what we were doing when we were all in the room together. And that was the most important thing, you know. It seems insular, and I know there's probably plenty of bands that it makes absolutely no sense to because it almost seems like, we kind of somehow don't exist because of that, but it's it's the way we just found to, found that works for us, you know. I don't think um, if we had been kind of really pushing it for like to be a regular gigging band, we probably still wouldn't be. We probably wouldn't be going, you know. Still wouldn't uh, we? Wouldn't exist now. Yeah, like Boz, you're I suppose different to the rest of the lads as in that you do the artwork for the albums as well. Is there parallels with being in York and painting in that you weren't able to hear the type of music you wanted to listen to and visually create your own artwork for the band, you know, that you weren't seeing the artwork that you would have liked yourself. So could you maybe talk about that? Well, I mean, the fact that the covers for your albums are done by me is just out of convenience. It's the fact that we can, we can do it. We can keep everything in house. I mean, if one of us was a sound engineer, for instance, we'd probably be, well, maybe that might not work too well. But, um, you know, it's be- because it's it's just another thing that's available to us that we don't have to rely on anybody else for, you know, it makes us uh, self-sufficient. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess I'd like to think I can come up with something that's presentable enough that... Uh, you know, I think over the five albums, when you put them together, you're st- we're st- I'm starting to see it now where there's there's a thing, there's a look, you know? I mean, I guess I've always been kind of aware of kind of developing that, but um, only really kind of starting to see it now when there's like a rhythm of kind of five CDs, you know? Um, mm. 
it takes takes that time to get it all together and because it's only five released things you know um here we are in the uh, 16th year and finally understanding what it is you know that, that that's a very much a part of it you know yeah steve what about you in relation to creating the music for yurt as well i certainly wouldn't want to categorize e um i wouldn't even do it justice if i tried to categorize e but you're quite happy with that anyway i'd imagine yeah it's like i think we the in, when we started there was no kind of let's do this genre let's do that genre it was basically let's kind of let's go for whatever ham-fisted version of prog rock heavy kind of prog rock that we can manage as with our limitations as musicians because none of us are trained as such we're not like you know we're 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 chancers really like but we're we're, we're chancers who have stuck, stuck with it you know i think yeah. so it's like the, the way maybe the, the way things are written is maybe a little unusual because all of the song structures will come from balls they're all pretty much written on the bass up until this album anyway they were oh, okay. they were written on bass and we basically build blocks on top of that like hmm. and so it tends to fill out in different in kind of unusual ways but now on the newer stuff that we're working on for the next for the sixth album which we've already started kind of writing up for Boz is starting to do some uh, electronic demos and it's given that it's we're working off an electronic template now at times which i think is it's another it keeps things fresh and interesting for us and it's a different way of going for it then you know it's a different way of doing it so yeah we always try and keep ourselves interested i think that's really important you know you don't so fall he in, doesn't into a kind doesn't of a, program you out bushy you know <laughs> well we have talked about that many times <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't get a fucking drum machine, stupid. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Boz, let's just talk about it as well, um, because we're all old school here. Um, you and you do have the DIY punk ethic as well, which I really appreciate coming through. And you had uh, one of Ireland's longest running punk fanzines, Nosebleed. That's right. And, from 19, was it 1992 around 2000 or? Until 2002, 2002 or three, 2002, I think, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there's people watching and listening to this, would you believe, that probably haven't ever picked up a fanzine. So maybe you might just talk about that side that, that you stuck with for so long and, you know, because like, I mean, I don't think you can get fanzines anymore, really. You used to be able to get them at independent record stores and stuff and for sale at merchandising tables as well. But like that whole element, which was a huge thing when I was growing up in Howard and all of us here, I'd say. Maybe yeah. just talk about the whole idea of the nosebleed and fanzine and well, it, what it meant to you. It ties in with everything creative that we're doing here. And uh, I mean, Bushy did a fanzine as well. Maybe he can mention that as well. He did what, one or two issues of Sonic Three. 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 I never saw three issues, but anyway, um, cool. yeah, it ties in with um, everything creative we're doing. In that, when you're of a certain age, and you know, um, you know, you're listening to certain types of music, and you're seeing people, and it's it's not anything that you're ever going to achieve, you know. Um, but with, I guess, with with the punk rock with the punk thing and the punk ideology it's um or it would be like it's more like a case of um 
what people, I guess, would now call like open source culture in that you don't just go watch bands go home like a sort of uh, the band's there and I'm here. The whole point in getting involved in that or being in and around that uh, ecosystem or whatever is that um, you bring something to it, you know? If if you've got four mates in the world and you can pull instruments together, you, you know, find a bedroom and make a band. And, um, you know, if you can't do that, draw the posters for the band. You can't do that you know, get a get a typewriter and some Tipex and some pieces of paper and, you know, be the press for it, you know? Um, yes. That's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful, especially when you're younger and it, it makes everything seem so accessible. It's like, you know, you're, it's, you're contributing to this yeah. kind of microcosm of, like, culture. And it doesn't have to be something that's, ever even kind of known outside your city or whatever. It's just, you know, it might be something that's, you know, your band might be seen by 50 people at most over a span of two or three years. You're, you know, you write fanzine or whatever. It might be read by 50, 100 people and that's it. But that's that's a success, you know. Mm. I mean, that's the whole thing. And the whole thing about it is it's not one thing that's uh, that's important. It's loads of different people doing these things and then they're creating, they're creating the, you know, a spread of music through a variety of bands or creating an underground press through a load of different ideas, photocopies, you know? So that's the basic, the basic talk behind it all, you know? I mean, for me, it was, uh, the extra thing for me was that it was a vehicle for artwork. Yes. And, um, that was important, you know, because it gave it a look. It meant I didn't have to just cut up the Irish Times and, you know, use that as my graphics or whatever. It's changed so, so much and so quickly. I mean, looking back at fanzine and even flyers for gigs, and that used to be part of the package of playing a gig is you'd have a poster and a flyer and you'd distribute and whatnot. But it, it seemed like a far more visceral connection to what was happening in the city in terms of a cultural movement or a mm-hmm. cultural thing. Whereas nowadays it seems it's online for two months before the gig, let's say there's a little fucking avatar there people would take photographs and forget all about it the next fucking day I don't know I remember going home from gigs in the Phoenix and Cork in the mid 90s and so on you'd have your flyer you'd have fucking fanzine you'd fuck you know it was just different you'd think about that gig for weeks mm. now you well, go to a gig it's oh yeah I think we've probably spoken about this before I think, I think the internet kind of changed how people engaged with that stuff football said it used to be the goal was to kind of uh make something that contributed to this, you know, it's yeah. kind of a disparate group, you know, like little scenes, but it was mainly one big thing, the crossover, you know, where uh, you might be able to pull a hundred people to a gig on a, on a very good night, you might get 150 people on a very bad night, you might get 10 people, but they were there and all of those 150 people participated. And when they made art, it, or they made a fanzine, or they made music, it was for that group of people. And I think what the internet, the law of the internet was kind of people went, it opens it to everyone. But in doing that, I think uh, people's goals become trying to get everything to everyone. You know, you've got a blog, people want everyone to read it. So it can dilute it in a way. And that when it was very local, it's uh, it was quite immediate. And it gave the sense of a community, or the sense of a scene, or the sense... Whereas now, 
again, to go back to bands, uh, Luke, we were saying earlier, bands kind of, uh, aspirations have changed. That's because when we would have started playing gigs in the mid-90s and the other lads, maybe a bit before me, you didn't really have those aspirations. You, you could play in a couple of, you know, there was towns in Ireland you could play in. Boy, bands weren't going, oh, we'll go on tour in America, or we'll do like a 40-day tour in Europe, and, oh, you know, we're going to put out our album digitally, and I got a thousand hits, and blah, blah, blah. You knew it was small. And, and in a way, because it was a lot of artists playing to other artists, you know, if anything new came out, I would just buy it. If a new tape came out, I'd buy it. I didn't necessarily have to love the band. Mm. I kind of saw it as uh, participating in this thing, whereas I think post the internet and post some bands, that would have been our peers at some points, getting some attention. You know, it kind of just changed the demographic. It started pulling people in who maybe thought of it in more terms of like we're the audience there at the band yeah and I you think know that, there's a lot of that way of thinking just ingrained in us in the way we operate in the earth in that you know we're not we don't have any aspirations to like one day play Roadburn or whatever or uh, you know go it would be nice tour in Europe or whatever it's there's just no appeal, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I don't want to. I just I personally have no interest in kind of celebrating myself in that way. You know, I mean, the interest is in continually moving forward and creating stuff. In that, mm. the album, the the new album, the one that we've just bought out, we are pretty much at the end of that cycle of songs. So. You know, by the time we release something, the songs are finished. We're not releasing the album and going, okay, great. Now we can go out and play these to the world, you know? We're kind of like, yeah. we'll do the launch gig and go, Christ, we don't have to play those songs ever again. Not again. <laughs> forward with new stuff, you know? That's amazing. I mean, so playing live, like, obviously that makes sense because you don't seem to tour much. So maybe, Steve, you could talk about the elements that come into play for ye as a band when you kind of have to promote an album like this yeah it's it's uh, i wouldn't go as far as saying it's a chore sometimes to play live because i think we, we played a, a gig last month i have to say i wasn't looking forward to doing it but when we did it i really enjoyed playing live so it was nice in that way but the problem is a lot of rehearsal goes into for us goes into getting a set together like okay. we put it we'd have to put a, a lot of work into rehearsing that set to get it to where we wanted to it to be to pull the gig off and sometimes like you can almost feel resentful that you're not moving forward with your new material when you're constantly like rehearsing for for gigs you're rehearsing sets for gigs like that's as boz was saying that moving forward is really really important to us and as long as we can feel as though we're kind of in perpetual motion it keeps us going but if we were to go on tour or play a ton of gigs we'd stop, we'd have to stop creating because we'd have to make sure we're on the button in terms of uh, having our set together. So it's kind of detrimental to the way we want to work. Mm. So there's that's there's no major appeal for any of us really to to be like a, a busy gigging band. It's nice to play a f few here and there every now and then, but... No, it can be a real labour getting those songs ready when you're fucking sick of playing them. And <laughs> Yeah. You know, I do it myself in the Magna Pina. We've off, you know 
every set is different, I guess. And yeah. if you write a song to practice beforehand, we're going to play it at the fucking gig. But I do find that if you gig a lot, it does get in the way of progression quite yeah. often. You're stopping to fucking check yourself and be on form with the previous songs, which feels like two steps back and one step forward yeah. quite often. You know? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, yeah, I, can, I can totally, totally get on board with that, you know? Yeah, I, I think for us as well, they, you know, it's complicated stuff. And for me, it's quite physical. So as much as I enjoy playing them, don't get me wrong, like Andy said, that gig we played recently, it was fucking great, you know, to see people enjoy it. But there's a lot of work in one of our sets. We can play that stuff for 50 minutes or something for me. You know, it's 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 exercise, you know. You might listen to it and go, ah, there's not a lot to go, but it's a lot. It's fairly they're long, relentless. They're long songs as well. I mean, you're averaging well, yeah. minutes, 12 minutes yeah. a song. Which is and, awesome. you know, they're relentless. Like, it's fucking, yeah. like, it's like, this for 50 fucking minutes. So, I, you know, I'm old now. I'm 45. I, it makes me sore. <laughs> He's old at 45. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah. You're just saying like that you're older than him, man. We've aged yeah, him right. That's what it is. We've, we've worn him down in the last 16 years. I, I used to have hair. <laughs> fucking six foot four. Is the bass getting heavier, Boz, as you're playing it? I am I upgraded my bass this year, so the one I have now is lighter. That was one of the um, <laughs> it, it, it was one of the things I was looking for, you know. Um, there's no reason to have something that fucking weighs like a like a five string music man, you know. But it's just ten tons of bass. What's the yeah. point, you know? Yeah, exactly. And what gear uh, did you bring into the recording of Upgrade to Obsolete? You might kind of start with you, Steve. What were the main guitars? And- um effects and pedals the main difference for this is I'd all the other albums I've uh, Marshall uh, Marshall JCM 2000 head that I've used and I managed to pick up this old PV head which is like a kind of a late 70s early 80s thing and it's got a really kind of unique sound so I started using that so my guitar sound was is slightly different to on the previous albums it's probably I don't know if it's really noticeable for outsiders but I'd notice it like myself and yeah, started using a different distortion pedal a while back, which has changed the sound a little bit slightly as well. Um, in terms of guitars, I've been using the Gibson SG on the same Gibson SG on everything that we've ever played. But I got, I have a PRS Custom as well, which I bought a couple of years ago, which I used. So it's I, two guitar tracks basically. I tracked one on the Gibson and one on the PRS. Actually, no. I tell her like the Gibson is not on this album. It's just the PRS. It was in oh. it was in the hospital, and now it's out of the hospital. So I'm getting my, <laughs> I get my bands mixed up because I'm just in the middle of recording with another band at the minute, and I used used the Gibson <laughs> and the PRS on that. So yeah, I just too much music, basically. But um, nothing too radically different. I don't think in terms of okay. just yeah, but the the guitar head was the is the main difference. So sound would be slightly different if anyone's looking for it. You know, I think. They'll find it. Boz? Um, I'm not so much of a um, gear person, you know. I'm very kind of, I mean, what, we were, what I recorded was the same, the one bass, I had the one five-string bass I owned, which was like a Ariat Pro 2 jazz bass. And I had we had problems when, when we went into record. It turned out that the, um, couldn't tune the, the 
couldn't tune all the strings properly because of the way the the bridge was set up. So it, it was just stress on the day, you know. Um, so that's the reason I changed my bass after recording. So that was a it was a big drag, you know. I mean, I probably should be a little. It made me a little bit more conscientious about gear. But before that, I've just whatever works without mm. you know interference and noise. It's again, it, I guess it comes from playing in punk bands for years and stuff like that. You know, I don't worship gear. I don't know the names of anything that I own. Um, I'm just <laughs> about I'm, the electronic side of things. Oh, the electronic side of things. That would be most of the, the sense of a user novation and cork. So again, I can't. I know what they are, but just now, when you put me on this spot, I can't rattle off the names of what they are. You know, but those are the two that are the kind of like just mid-range kind of just since I don't use any um, anything modular. Mm. So it's just stuff to do the job with. You know, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't start messing around with kind of software sense and everything like that. I think it, there has to be something kind of tactile to go with yeah. ham-fisted playing, you know, where you tend to find different ways of doing things when you're recording purely by accident, by messing around with a physical keyboard, you know, whereas yeah. I was doing everything with a, like a MIDI keyboard and just you know, messing around with stuff, basically staring at a computer screen and changing values and all the rest. That's not something I want to get into, you know? Yeah, I'm surprised now to hear that because you've, you've a solo project, Rogue Spore, that's more or less electronic as well. Um, like, are you recording demos? What program are you using to record demos on? Reaper or one of those? Garage Everything band? goes into Audacity. Audacity, yeah. wow. Recording, record, uh, record absolutely, even, even the... Recording the synths for um, for Yurt, it's all Audacity because everything is just. I don't want to do anything with the sound once it's gone into the computer. You know, everything is organised on the actual synthesizer. Um, mm. You know, it just seems like a headache. It seems completely joyless to be getting into kind of like fiddling around with software, and I'd rather be making the music. I think you have a companion down there in Howard. He's smiling away there. It's, it's interesting. I'd be, I'm absolutely envious of it because, you know, I went through a lot of the time with that sort of um, attitude towards playing gigs. It's like, you make do with what you fucking have. And yeah. that was kind of the times it was as well, I guess. You know, gear wasn't readily avail available. If there was a combo at the gig, that's what you were fucking using and you got on with it. But as time went on, got a job and got good gear and realized the worth of it. But it is a fucking head wreck. It's It's is a little bit joyless because you think about it quite often, you're constantly trying to chase tone. And all chasing tone is, is you're just evolving your tone. But the more amps you kind of go through, the more amps I've gone through, it's fucking you have your head turned left and right every fucking 20 seconds if you let it. I think I think there's a point comes where you have to just say, all right, fuck off. I'm just yeah. going to use this for the next fucking yeah. five or six years. See how I go. But I, I'm envious of that sort of, um, to still have that ability to just say, yeah, fuck it these are the tools I've got to use and this is what I'm going to use. This is what's available to me and I'm going yeah, to make the best of it. I find that being obsessed with gear, I've been seeing it since I was a teenager, being obsessed with gear gets in the way of having ideas for mm -hmm. actual music. Um, yeah, you know, I can't tell you the amount of people who played guitar around me when I was a teenager and they would kind of boast about being able to play this Megadeth solo or, you know, the 
bass solo off that Metallica album or whatever. And none of them were ever in bands, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They'd like upgrade the guitars and upgrade the pedals and amps all the time, but I never left the fuck about him, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not music. That's wanking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I try to keep things simple gear wise as well. Like I've, I've seen people go down those rabbit holes and it's just like, I'll, tr- I'll, I'll try something out if I'm offered it, basically. So, like, <laughs> I got offered, uh, I'll try this distortion pedal from a guy, Moose, who makes custom pedals up in Dublin from oh, yeah, Rocket, yeah. and uh, tried it out and it was just magnificent. So I was like, right, that's for me. And, mm. But there's no, you know, there was no kind of, oh, I have to try these 10 other ones at the same time or I have to try these mm. four amps in sequence or whatever. It's like, it, it does get distracting as long as, what, whatever I plug into, if I can get the sound that I'm reasonably happy with, I just I tend to stick with it. I tend not to tweak too much because I'm not particularly good with all that it, it, technically. So I'll kind of if I, if I get what I like, I'll just say yeah, Grant, we leave it at that and just move with that for as long as I have, as long as I can, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the awful merit to it. I mean, I went through a phase of of pedals and all that kind of crack, and at the moment I'm using a delay pedal and an overdrive pedal, and that's it. Yeah. And I'm, that's all I've used for the last five or six years. Fine when you're playing live and something goes wrong, fucking two things to look at, you know? Yeah. That's all I do. I use a multi-effect unit for like various bits of effects that I use because I just, I can't have a pedal board with 10 pedals on it. It just drives me nuts. You know, it's just, it's too much. Little fucking patch cables and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's engineering, basically, and I'm not an engineer. <laughs> well, she, we haven't sent you to sleep yet, no? You're still got us. Oh. <laughs> uh, he got new fancy symbols recently. You should ask him about ah, that. <laughs> okay, so you did purchase, you did? Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I bought a set of uh, Moino Dark Custom Classics and they cost me fucking too much money, man. <laughs> yeah, 1,100 euros for a set of symbols. Wow. But, uh, now, look, I, I'm, I'm good technique, I the stuff I was replacing was about 15 years old, so yeah. There you go, man. No, I, I, I'll, get a, I'll get a good run out of them. Okay, cool. So let's go into the album. Again, what can I say? Congratulations. I absolutely love it. And the first track is one of my favorites. So it's called Paralyze. And is it the obvious first track for all of you? Was there any debate in the opening track being Paralyzed before I play it? No, they were all, I think with this one, it was very unusual. And I think with the exception of the last two tracks, everything is in the order that it kind of came into band practice. Okay. Yeah. But it wasn't, it, it wasn't that we decided to do it that way. It just turned out to be a logical sequence for the album anyway. Mm. So it's just a coincidence. Yeah, I, I, I would say Paralyzed is, it's the one where every time we write an album, we finish one, and then there's always the first thing that we're kind of working on. So okay. it's, it's the one that you tend to be sick of the most. <laughs> By the time, it's the one you've been playing for like two years before you record it. You know, so when we launched, when we did the album launch for Yurk 4, um, Paralyzed was the first song, was the first song that we opened that gig with yeah so it's around a while you know it's, so it's, it's five years four years to us it's from then and needs to kind of be resigned to the slag heap at this stage you know <laughs> there always seems to be a transitional song between albums mm. like yeah. every album i think has been like that there's 
there's been one that's almost made it onto the previous album, but not quite. And that will become okay. the building block for the next album. And that's what Paralyze is for this one, for sure. Yeah. Okay, we'll give it a spin here then. Yeah, it was so hard to pick out like clips of a minute, minute and a half for you lads, but I just chose that section. The opening of it, no, again, I'm going to throw bands at you just for the crack for the next seven songs or six songs. Um, so the opening there, I got a lovely, lovely fit no more buzz off it back in the Angel Dust days. That was my take in it. Uh, would, would any of you... I, I even like Fate No More. I love that album. No, I yeah. wouldn't say I was thinking about when we were writing the song, but I love that album. Yeah. Fate No More for me. I'm an Introduce Yourself fan. Mm. That's when okay, I came, fair that, enough. That's yeah. when I came to Fate No More. Um, and um, it's the one I always go back to. You know, I kind of lost me for a bit in the 90s. I've since gone back to all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, I guess it's not a band I really think of much in terms of my bass playing or writing songs or anything like that. But we probably haven't said that Fate No More is an interesting one because their musical influences, the things that they, you know, from that era of Fate No More, there's probably very, very similar things, you know, like Killing Joke, Public Image Limited, that sort of thing. And that's that's definitely a direct line into Yurt, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the whole um, arcade vibe as well, with, with the way you have the keys set up, it's, it's continual through the whole album. Boz, um, why do you have that effect running through the album for continuity and other things? Or um, Are you talking about the keyboard specifically on that song or just in general on the album? In general, it's like kind of tuning frequencies. It's, it's never kind of prominent, but it's always in the background, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the whole thing about the synthesizers is because we don't, you know, the center, the only time that synthesizers are on um, 
your music is when we record. I mean, you see us playing live. Yeah. That's not there. It's just the three of us. So there's no point in, um, you know, writing something around a synthesizer or having it as a dominant feature to the point where it becomes something else because it's not representative of us, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, we sometimes kind of joke about shooting ourselves in the foot and and doing exactly the wrong thing in terms of, you know, in the in the great tradition in the tradition of all great prog bands and doing an absolute wanky eighties type album, you know, a la what Genesis and Yes did in the eighties sort of thing, you know. So maybe that'll be our time to do a horrible keyboard <laughs> album, you know. But I'd need to find um keyboards maybe of that era with truly disgusting sounds on them in order to do that, you know? Mm. So, but yeah, it, it, it's, it has to be the synthesis, the synthesizers, the keyboards, it has to be um, something that augments the, the, the tracks rather than be a defining feature of them. Because if we let it be something, if we let it, let it go to a point where um, it's kind of dominant, then, it's not representative of what we're doing, you know? Mm. I mean, you'd hear the album and then see us live and it would be two completely different things. And that's, that's not. Bands often fall into that trap. Yeah. You know, so it's a fun, it's a fun production thing to do. I mean, it's probably the thing that takes the longest in terms of putting together a yurt album, you know, because I can't play keyboards or everything. If this bits, there was runs, if there's anything that is not noise, that's actual, playing, you know, all that stuff was recorded in open note and built, you know, pieced together kind of on a, on a computer screen, you know? Yeah. So it's a, it's like Lego. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Building block. And just maybe talk about black slabs of granite below falling paralyzed on a machine gunning for a takedown into paradise, psychometric red flag rain. Where were you heading with, with that? Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to to, to um, dissect your lyrics and that like that's kind of a, like a lone wolf type of thing, you know. But um, okay. a lot of the stuff is um, it's just kind of ideas, um, dream logic, dystopian ideas, that sort of thing, you know. It's mm. stuff that fits the music in that there would be no point in us writing kind of bedwetter kind of you know songs of unrequited love or whatever, you know, and we don't know anything about goblins and wizards and dragons <laughs> and anything like that. We just don't, you know, it's not yeah. part of our lives. So, um, just, I think it's just observation, reading, you know, documentaries, little bit scraps of information from everywhere, you know, I mean, there have been times when I've had my moment where I've woken up and there's been an idea and I've written down, a ream of text and that's been come that's become lyrics you know now that sounds yeah. awful fucking pompous and pretentious by the time yeah. it ended up in the track it looked nothing like the original notes of course but that's where the idea comes from and then you just develop it and develop it yeah. that's it's just the, the it's the kind of germ of it you know um so i think that's the same with all the lyrics in that they start off being one thing you might get a couple of lines and then an idea sort of attaches itself to it afterwards, you know? Um, so if there's things in there that kind of don't make direct sense, it's probably because two things have been stapled together. Yeah. 
I just yeah. wanted to ask you, Buzz, do you find the um, the lyric writing and the vocals and so on, do you find it an uncomfortable process or is it that it's uncomfortable to speak about it, if you understand what I mean? No, I don't find it. it the lyric writing, it takes a long time because I don't want to be saying, I, I think it, in terms of Europe, because there's so few lyrics, I mean, this is lyrics as opposed to kind of singing and doing vocals. There's so few r- lyrics that we kind of have to make them very bulletproof, you know? Um mm-hmm. Because they're only they're only really going to stand out if uh, if they're bad if there's like a stinker of a line in there or something. Um, so that's always on my mind. And the other thing is obviously stuff that flows well, stuff that kind of works in terms of pacing, in terms of playing and singing at the same time. That is a big thing that comes into it, and that kind of shapes things in a big, big way. You know, you can't yeah. kind of force force an idea onto something and then you just it's it just doesn't fit you know in terms of like you're trying to uh have a kind of a certain rhythm to it because i mean the vocals there is a rhythm to i mean the way we treat the vocals in yurt is none of us are conventionally singers you know and um it probably it, took a while for you to develop together as singing partners as such like um do you sing over steve Boz, or it's, not, it's a lot of kind of dual vocals you know and then there's little mm. bits that i will kind of take myself because of the lyrics um i generated the lyrics in the first place so it's just the way it kind of pans out um i don't know this works so far <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's I'm sure. I'm sure there is an answer to that, but I just don't think about it anymore. You know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like Howard, like... you, you. Sorry, Steve. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Like Howard, is that a hard process for you as well to come up with lyrics in relation it's interesting, to? Uh, watching Buzz's reaction to the question, and it's something. It's. I guess when I look at Buzz reacting, it's it's how I feel I'd react. You know, I do enjoy the process of writing lyrics. Um, I don't enjoy the process of trying to explain them to people, but it's one of those things that keeps me up at night at times when I'm uh, at home thinking about it and like you said if there's a line that stands out to you or if there's a sentiment that you've you know put forward in your head and you're trying to figure out why is that there and is it fucking worth sharing is it is it any good and i don't know it, it, you start to question yourself a little bit and it, but i find that enjoyable i guess yeah this but, is it, but it comes to explaining it to people it's very very fucking difficult to articulate there's a song on the album the brand evangelist and um there was a line in that and i don't remember which one it was but i remember having severe fucking difficulty with it and I sat on it for fucking two or three weeks and it was all I could think about just getting that like two or three words at the end of a line trying to figure yeah. out what, what needed to be put in there you know and you you just you know you think about it so much that you can't get a rational result you know mm. it becomes kind of stupid so yeah this when you get kind of uh, deep into that sort of thing I mean lyric writing mode it kind of sits in your head a little bit too much to be kind of a healthy thing you know you tend to kind of like obsess about obsess about it a fair bit even though i mean the yurt lyrics there isn't like reams and reams of them you know we can fit everything we've written in the two kind of fold outs on the on Mm. the cd but uh yeah i don't know yeah like i said i don't kind of steve do you want to jump in there um yeah i remember like i just early on i tried to write some lyrics i wrote there's one song on the first album I wrote the lyrics for but 
it's not something I'm particularly good at. I, I find my lyrics are very contrived or something, and I, I never get to be able to convey what I'm trying to convey. So I just gave up on it because I think Boz is much better than me at it. So it works better if it's and if it's the one voice as well, you know, if it's the one lyrical style, it works a lot better. But in terms of how vocals work, like Boz will come in with the with the pattern or whatever, and I'll generally try and see can I get some kind of off kilter harmony or something okay. to augment it. And we 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 seem to have found something, yeah, because we're we're pretty limited vocally, like so. We seem to have found something that works for us, some kind of. I wouldn't even call it a harmony. That's kind of an insult to harmony, really. But um, it's whatever it is, it seems to work and it seems to be something we're quite comfortable with these days. So it reminds me of the, the Melvins quite a bit. And um, have a listen to the record. It, it was the first thing I disliked about the, listening to your record was the vocals, but it's testament. Like, listen to the Jesus, I must be in a dozen times now. And on my 12th listen, the vocals are the thing I'm looking forward to in every song, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just some of it. Rosen, like, come, comes from early Hawkwind as well. That's what I was yeah. going to say. That's, it's, yeah. that's a big thing. I mean, yeah. I tend to, the way I kind of approach putting a vocal over a song is that you just find that kind of comfortable spot of your voice and sing flat directly across it and then let Andy do the, the up, down, find the, the harmony or the kind of give it a bit of, give it a bit of girth, you know? Um, yeah, or, you I, know, not, I just don't have the vocal dynamics for that. I need to kind of find that one pitch yeah. that I can comfortably sing along yeah, to, to whatever. To, uh, to more year, a lot of it sounds like uh, yeah, the kind of 1972, 1973 Hawkwind, and then uh, like metal box era pill, that kind of flat yeah. vocal that sits over the music rather than in around it, if you know what I mean. Kinda. Yeah. Well, I'm going to play the, the second song, and it's the title track. It's Upgrade to Obsolete. And this is my favorite track, and that actually is my favorite vocals from me as well. Um, so we'll give it a spin, as I said. That's a super track, and I'm going to throw another band at you there. Well, a solo artist actually, Gary Newman, early Gary Newman. Especially with the vocals, there's there's one for you. You can 
think about that. Can uh, you hear any uh, Gary Newman in there? Gary Newman's definitely in my DNA. I think Dance by Gary Newman was one of the first records I ever owned. Okay. Um, and but that wasn't that was kind of new romantic Gary Newman with kind of yeah. slapping. That sounded more like a Japan album than um, <laughs> kind of a late late seventies uh, electronic album. You know. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of references in there that we don't think about at the time that it's always kind of fascinating when other people hear things. And I like the fact that, you know, you when you put something out into, um, when you put something out into public. Like earlier on today, I got a, um, a message on Facebook of a guy who's um, reviewing the album for me and he, he wanted to run something by me. He goes, uh, is it okay if I make this reference? And I was kind of like... I'm happy for you to do anything. I just we're happy to be getting the attention. Um, it's really I was I don't think I said it's it, it was it's really none of our business what other people write or to to try and steer them in any direction of what they hear. You know, you yeah, like nice. it, it's great. You don't like it, that's great as well. There's other music you can listen to. There's quite a lot of other music you can listen to. So there's no point in there. You know, don't stop here if it's not of interest to you. You know. Um, but in terms of the synths, I mean, the electronic music is, I listen to a lot of electronic music, um, especially a lot of kind of old German electronic music, stuff like Cluster um, would be a big favourite of mine, you know. Um, and uh, Klaus Schultz, stuff like that. Um, so that's why I like doing kind of those, those bits where we had kind of soupy, yeah. Yeah, spacey you know it's an indulgence but it's nice to be able to put them there even if it's at the end of a song or in a little intermission or whatever you yeah know? you could you could go back further even and ray masaryk with the doors as well that kind of the way he used to structure stuff with the keys so um, it's funny to, to you say gary newman like it's, it's only listen to that song to that part there and i'm just like oh yeah it does there is that is there see so we, that happens to us quite a lot like so, somebody will point out something and say, oh, is that an influence or is this, you know, uh, this sounds like this? And we'd be like, oh, yeah, that never occurred to us before. Mm. It's quite interesting to pick up on other people's perceptions on it sometimes. Yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting thing because it, it's hard to categorize you, which is, you know, I, I know you're not happy with being categorized anyway, but I think the way to try to associate your music, you know, in my brain is to pick artists that I've heard over the years that sound yeah. a little bit like that. And it's, it's kind of striking how many fucking artists are crossing across the top of the screen there in terms of what you're thinking of. You know, it's reminding me of a lot of Station to Station by David Bowie. Real, real Berlin 80s vibes in it, you know? But that's just only one element. There's other... Mm. Geez, you could throw any fucking genre at this in terms of a name a name check and you'd find the reference somewhere, like, you know? Yeah. Mm. Uh, what about the title, lads? Upgrade to Obsolete. Yeah. Um, as, the, as the title of the song or the title of the album? And, uh, yeah. Oh. Um, well, it was it. It became the title of the album because it was the. Um, it just worked. It was. The, it seemed like the snappiest one of the song titles, and we did that with the last album as well. It's the lazy way to pick an album title, you know, to find a song. But um, obviously, the song has to stand up in a way. You know, if it's one that you're not kind of sure about, or one that's maybe a little bit kind of lesser than the other stuff on the album, then there's no point in picking that. But um, that one worked out well. And um, I always try to pick pick them in terms of um, what kind of binds the thing together. This is getting into the idea of making the albums based around 
you know, having something conceptual going on there. Not that there's a true thread of like some big story that we concocted or whatever, but, you know, something that ties in with the artwork or something that triggers an idea for the artwork or, um, you know, ties in the whole album as a package, as a thing where it looks like there's something going on there. It's not just a bunch of songs about, you know, there isn't a kind of a, you know, we don't have a, like an I'm in love with my car type song or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we could figure out a way of doing that as well. But um, yeah, the upgrade to obsolete, it's, I guess it's about um, stupid obsessions with technology, you know, yeah. or just, you know, bad, the bad of technology. Um, and I'm not putting it down. I'm not fucking saying anything's crap. I think it's all wonderful because... I was there from all these modern modern conveniences that we all have, you know? I think we all remember all of the age when we remember when this shit wasn't there, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't great, you know? Especially in thinking in terms of when we mentioned an earlier about coming from a world of fanzines and then, you know, that being kind of pushed aside by access to blog blogger and GeoCity sites and stuff like that. And then um, moving on to the whole world being on your phone. And before we came live tonight, you were talking about, uh, you know, people's obsessions with their phones. And, um, you know, if absolutely everything, every piece of kind of culture or every sort of reference in life that outside your work and sleep, if that's all being kind of just funneled down into a small gadget, it tends to be, you know, they're just aesthetically a little bit kind of crap, you know? Yeah. If that, you know, in terms of like visually, in terms of, you know, anything kind of artistic doesn't look good on a phone, whether it's photography, whether it's movies, whether it's just art or comic books or whatever, um, music, forget it, you know? Um, yeah. And... And had your DR piece to represent that already, Boz, or did you up with it from scratch working off the title the album cover the album cover was done last year so all the songs except no i think the album cover was done around the time that the brand evangelist was written that was the last one in so um yeah was it it was done last year late last year so yeah it's just based on based on the kind of loose idea of you know what people kind of uh I don't know. I was trying to, I wanted to be kind of vague about it. I don't want to like sort of, you know, uh, put a solid idea down, you know, go on record and say, this is exactly what it is. I mean, I have my ideas as well. The kind of character on the front is like, it's like, you know, we have a um, world now where people are kind of weird to grow. They grow up without any sort of, organized religion so they put all other things in those places instead of being happy without it maybe that's the idea you know mm. and what those things are so it's just like an imaginary figure like hooked into whatever you know mm. um, what uh, colors did you boy did you go for orange and yellow for example because we haven't done it before oh. <laughs> nice. i messed around with photoshop in the background and that came up and it looked good i want to do something fiery you know yeah okay um, Nice. We hadn't a lot of the work we've done in the past. I think um, that kind of red and yellow worked really well on the last album, 
there was mainly a brown background, but yeah. there was a touch of red and yellow, like a fiery color on that. So I kind of wanted to uh, have it interlinked with that in a way and that you're just kind of flipping it over and making that the color of the whole thing and then lay something on top of that instead, you know? Yeah, oh, it definitely stands out. And uh, Stephen Andrew, when he came up with the final product, uh, delighted with it, yeah? Yeah, always. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's always great. Like, it's, it just, we don't even have, we even have to think about it. Like, okay, that's great. That way, he just, just, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a real bonus. Like, with other mm-hmm. bands, you know, you're really head scratching over artwork or layouts and all that. And just with Boz, just, we just know it's going to be good and yeah. it's great. Mm-hmm. Take a lot of stress off us. Well, yeah. me and Bushy, yeah. yeah. That's the <laughs> for Boz. <laughs> uh, what else would he be doing? <laughs> And the great thing about those elements as well is this, I mean, what occurs to you after I was saying earlier about there being kind of a rhythm now that you see a few of them is, you know, there are instances where you have bands who have the same thing. They have an artist within the band. I mean, the typical example is Boyvod, of course, that, um, yeah. you know, there's a great rhythm, beautiful rhythm to all those albums. Mm. Uh, it makes it, it makes the whole package very unique. Um, that's definitely something that's, in the back of my mind all the time, you know, yeah. um, you know, having that very visual component that kind of belongs very specifically, to, very specifically to a band. Now I have done covers for other people, but, uh, you know, there is, that is a yurt look. Now, if we were to go and turn around, I mean, like we've been threatening again, we need to go and do our, you know, our Emerson, Lake and Palmer love beach album cover where we're all standing with shirts and medallions. <laughs> and Astel and suits. You know? I've made mockups of those type of album covers where we haven't shared them, but maybe I've shared them on Facebook, but uh, we haven't done it yet. You know, that will come with our crappy 80s synth album when we do it. <laughs> Class. Okay, we'll move on to the next track. The Book of Esophagus, track number three. She, you did some job on the drums in that song. Yeah, look, play, man. That, you know, it's, 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 what, it's what I'm there to. Yeah, he's a modest it, guy, it, lads. He's a no, modest it's, guy. It's, 
<laughs> I think maybe, to be honest, I think if, uh, if you're used to listening to kind of metal, you just don't hear those timings that frequently, but it's nothing very complicated. Who are your heroes? Music? Oh, I don't know. Lots and lots and lots. Uh, Would it be jazz? Yeah, I, I love Elvin Jones, who played with John Coltrane. He's one of my favourites. He's a fucking incredible drummer. Uh, but the majority of the stuff we would have grown up on, kind of standard stuff, uh, let me think. Bob, 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 Bob. Was it Bob number two who played drums in Devo? Really underrated. Wow. Fucking incredible drummer. The guy on the first four or five albums. Uh, Nirvana, I, I thought Chad Channing was an incredible drummer, and Dave Grohl, uh, so much stuff, like Dave Lombardo, obviously, mm. or kind of those fast little fills, uh, tons, tons and tons and tons, I'm, I'm leaving people out, uh, you know. That's, that's perfectly fine, you can kind of get the vibe on it. One of the most underused instruments in metal, in my opinion, mm. is the saxophone. I am a massive <laughs> fan of a dirty sax in stoner, sludge, rock, post-metal, anything. Who do I have to thank for playing the sax on this? Uh, I don't know if you should be thanking me. I, I, <laughs> I got myself one last year. Um, I just wanted to try something new, a, a new kind of instrument. I've tried like over the years. I've had little goals of drums, little goals of keyboards. And I just thought, no, I want to sax something completely different so i can't play the saxophone i cannot play it yet so that was just random noise basically that was tracked i haven't really had time to go and get lessons or anything like that so we just <laughs> said right let's 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 see what happens let's go and try and track on it see what happens and what we got seems to suit the song so there you have it <laughs> brilliant how are yeah, my favorite song on the on the album that that track really yeah uh, it's a, yeah, reminds me reminds me a lot of the the last Bowie album, um, Black Star. A lot of elements of oh, the, yeah, the yeah. sax been used, the jazz drumming and funny time signatures and what. But the bass line, the do 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 do. Yeah, I fucking am all about that track. It's, it was the first yeah. one that stood out to me has been exceptional. Yeah, it's 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 false time, man. It's it's a uh, it's it's three over four, and then we have to do. Oh, we don't remember. Off the top of my head, I think we have to do five of them to make a bar or something. But that's all it is. It's just like <laughs> yeah. one, two, three, one, two, three. And then you just put in some more bass drums and kind of makes it sound fancier than it is. But I will say it is a song where uh, if, if if you don't think about it while you're playing it, if you let your mind wander, mm. you're, you're fucking gone. <laughs> you know, it gets away from you very quickly, that song. You know, it really gets away from you. But, uh, yeah. yeah, that's the one where it tends to be slightly different every time we do it. Every time we play it in band practice, there's always something that, mm. you know, something we're out for like a couple of bars or something and have mm. to figure out how to like all fall back in line. And we, we have, a, you know, there's a couple of little kind of tricks developed for that. But uh, yeah, that one turned out really well. I mean, it, it was one of those ones that's always kind of, you know, something on each of the albums where bring in something and we just go what the fuck is this we don't understand it but it seemed like the logical one there was this kind of bit in the middle which is kind of free form and we just kind of we ended up with a you know a loose arrangement for it so 
when Andy did announce that he had bought a saxophone, we were kind of like, right, the saxophone going on our next album. You know, it's as simple as that. It was like, there was no way that it, it wasn't happening. So, um, you know, there wasn't, we're not going to wait for 10 years for him to become a maestro, you know? We don't need don't need that for what we were doing there. You know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's putting grit on the song. It's, yeah. You know, I think you can lose is, that, but you can lose that with uh, advancing as well. You know, there's a certain point when you're learning an instrument where things are fresh and fun, and as you get better at it and you learn more things, you kind of lose a little bit of that. And you gain a lot more, but you do lose a certain thing. But I think you've captured something here with the saxophone in its progress. You know, that's really fucking cool. Well, I, yeah, I, no, I think there's that, nothing precious about it. Yeah, I think mm. that's why a lot of modern prog is shit. Really, <laughs> no, really. Look, I'm talking this point because. <sighs> That would never be on an album because it wouldn't be right. Or a lot of what we do would be taught out of the fact where there wouldn't be these bits where we'd lose ourselves. Or there wouldn't, you know yeah. what I mean? It'd be like fucking practically. Imagine, imagine having a session player come in and playing the sax and asking him to do that. It'd be, it'd be quite fucking difficult, you know? Let's go. Do stuff. Let's <laughs> <Just> go mad. <laughs> You have to remember, though, again, well, with a lot of the kind of modern prog things, some of that shit is just, you know, incredible musicians playing just disgustingly unlistenable music, you know? Mm. Um, you know, to people like them, we probably sound like some fucking meathead in like the foreskins or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly not, Boz. Right, track four, Breakfast in Axum. Fantastic piece of music. That's what York is all about for me. Fantastic solo on it as well, Steve. <laughs> the Kingdom of Axum Tribalism. It's in northern Ethiopia. Boz, did you do much research into that? Maybe artwork, or how did you? So the story behind this, and there is a fairly logical story. Um, so myself and my brother were in Ethiopia, and. It's kind of based on ideas, a couple of different incidents that happened, one in Axum 
and one in Lalibela where the famous uh, rock-hewn churches are. Now, there's a lot of a lot of the kind of Ethiopian Orthodox. I'll start that again. I don't know what that was. <laughs> a lot of the Ethiopian Orthodox priests are fucking shysters, you know. You know, just the the money grabbing and all that sort of thing. It's just really, really awful, you know. Um, we had um, had an incident. We had a run in with somebody at the uh, at the Rockhewn churches at the not George's church, one of the other ones down in. Um, in uh, Lalibela, because there was a guy being really aggressive to us, one of the uh, priest lackeys or something, you know, like demanding to see our passports and all this sort of thing. And we didn't know who the fuck he was. And so, you know, there was a, we'd gone out onto the square, there's like a triangle kind of big area of dirt out in the front of them before you pay in. And we were looking, there was this kind of guy, blind guy coming over with a, um, with a walking stick and a can, you know, looking for money. And he was way over the other side and he kind of walked down there and he took like a, a, this incredible L-shaped turn and landed like right in front of us and was walking towards us as if he, he was going to bump into us, you know? So we had to kind of dive to get out of this guy's way and we're like, that guy's not fucking blind, you know? So this is the sort of shit you have to put up with. And we saw there was a number of incidents, but the one that kind of the song was based on, we went up to Axum um, and in Axum there's a church where it is claimed that the Ark of the Covenant is in either the crypt or a adjacent building. And it's too good, so you're not allowed to see it. You just have to take their word for it. This sort of shit, you know? And, of course, relics big business. So this church or cathedral or whatever, it, it's a, you know, the inside grounds of it has just become a, a, a magnet for the infirm and the insane from all the local villages and all the rest. So... We were staying in a hotel that kind of overlooked it and we were kind of discussing this and all this sort of stuff we'd seen that had happened. And we were sitting up on this kind of big flat area of concrete that kind of overlooked this. And there's no fucking way the Ark of the Covenant is down there. Um, it was breakfast time, so my brother was uh, sitting there and he was kind of like, he had a piece of toast with some marmalade or whatever on it, you know? And uh, we were sitting there talking shit about the Ark of the Covenant and talking shit about Holy God and all the rest. And he felt this kind of brush past his ear and an Egyptian eagle swooped down and took his breakfast off him and just kind of disappeared <laughs> up to the top of a broken sign and sat there eating it, you know? We're like, fucker. So that's basically breakfast in Axum. That's what the song is about, you know? Um, Brilliant. Usual, but I mean, it just, it made sense, you know, to put those ideas together and... Uh, and that's what came out of it, you know. I don't know whether the logic of the way the lyrics lie in the song tell that story, but that's the story that... Uh, Again, that organ plays um, an important part in the song, that that the busy riff and bass that's flowing through it, the organ just drifts in and out again. Like, even that whole song, it reminds me of Gojira's Magma album. There's a, another curveball to throw at you, Steve, maybe. Don't know it at all. I know, I know of the band, but I'm... No, I've never yeah. actually listened to them, I don't think. You know? I, I, I've never listened to a guitar. No, I've never listened to them either. That's brilliant. I, I think you're doing him a disservice by, um, by referencing Gojira, to be quite honest. Ah, <laughs> early Gojira, come on, man. They're class. You're doing Gojira. Uh, you're doing Gojira a huge <laughs> service. <laughs> a disservice, yeah. <laughs> There's too many bands. You haven't got a chance, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no. Okay, right, moving on to the brand evangelist, another favourite of mine. 
lovely Pink Floyd vibe off this song, I must say. Surely yeah. beat the fuck. Somebody can agree oh, yeah, on this we, one. We, we all like early, early the Floyd, for sure. Yeah. I think early Pink Floyd is something that you'll see definitely coming to the fore in a big way with the next album. Oh, um, wow. that kind of, I would refer to as the Relics era Pink Floyd. You know, there'd be a lot of that in that. I mean, um, I think it's a huge thing for, it's been something... Certainly, I've been listening to it since my mid-teens. It's something I always go back to. There's just endless fucking joy to be had from that stuff. You know, it's it's just absolutely fucking fantastic. You know, um, where that comes from, I made a demo for that song with synths and just some drum samples and uh, scratch vocals and some harmonies and stuff. Um, the idea was to, one to try and write something shorter by writing an entire song and bring it in and sending the demos to the demo, emailing it to the others so that we wouldn't kind of get away from ourselves like we usually do. Like maybe I would come in with ideas that would amount to a six minute song. Yeah. And then by the time we have put it through the year blender, it ends up being a 12 minute song, you know, because of just the nonsense that goes on. Um, and it's great nonsense, you know, um, but so another kind of, Thing that another I like the pink the relics era Pink Floyd another thing that I've just been going back to like consistently throughout my life music wise is uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath the uh, Black Sabbath you know okay. I was thinking like of writing something in terms of something like uh, like a Who Are You kind of a, something with a synth bedrock on it mm. but kind of like a, a National Acrobat sort of thing as yeah. well it's got those two elements yes. thrown in together. So I figured if I put like if we made the a really high quality demo, um, we could actually use that, use the synths of that, bring it into the studio, you know, put live drums on it, put decent vocals and guitar arrangements and all that sort of thing on it, and that would be it. There's, there's no bass on that song. The bass is made on uh, is played on the synth, you know. Okay. Um, so that's where that one came about, you know, and. Uh, it, it, yeah, it was an interesting experiment in that it wasn't, we've never stood in a room and played that song together, you know? What? Really? And here oh, I was no. thinking if you could play that live, it would be just absolutely fantastic. Oh, we, we, but you see, that's the thing, really, if you recall what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, not wanting to kind of deviate from sounding like a three-piece guitar based drums band too much to the point where we become something else. That's borderline in terms of I would, I would call that a experiment you know I guess writing a it's not necessarily a pop hit or anything but we have done things on albums before where they've been kind of little electronic sketches and things like that and that's building a whole song around that idea mm. um, I mean I'm sure if we practiced it we could throw out a version of it but it would probably be quite different you know and by the time people are used to hearing that and that's the one that's gone out Prior to the album. Well, of course, yeah. I forgot um, to say that it was a signal. It would sound like that. Um, if you pull the synths off, that's, it's not going to be as interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah I, that song, the only times I've played that before we recorded it was in the rehearsal room. Was, was just, we had it on the, like an every tree player, a phone or something, and we just mini jack it into the PA and play it, and I just try and learn it mm. in front of them. So yeah, in the studio, then we just went in and I just had to play it. I, I don't really like playing the fucking clicks or anything. I find it kind of unnatural. 
what we played it and that was it then just took off the other drums and tidied up what I did you know and uh, most of what was written I think stayed on the track where the drums and the vocal and stuff and then the guitars were added so yeah so like when the album takes off lads and you're playing in the Olympia and people will start taking out the lighters it'll be because of the brand evangelist <laughs> well of course the lighters are fucking gone now so they'll all have their fucking oh. lights on their phones shining them up at bars you know be almost pink floydish in the new <laughs> don't, don't play the hit that's the trick you know don't play gigs and don't play the hit the ultimate horror <laughs> lads that that track is absolutely outstanding it's um it's one of my favorites i'd um, say it's it's probably my favorite as well mm. It's the quickest guitar parts I've ever written yeah. for this band. Because once I heard that demo, <laughs> I was like, right, this I love this. Right, I have to get something together for this quickly. And so I really enjoyed just writing. I sat down and wrote that very, very quickly. Wow, the guitar really? Yeah, fantastic. It, it was very near to when we were recording because, I mean, I basically gave that to... We had already started the writing stuff in rehearsal for uh, Yurt 6. And <clears throat> like, late, like last year, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so probably a couple of different tracks on the go, like just in rehearsals, but I bought that in and went, here's another idea for Yurt 6, but I wasn't expecting everybody to go, now let's put this on the album, it's ready, you know? So uh, yeah, it came together really quickly, which is very unusual for a Yurt track. Usually the kind of gestation period is months, you know? Yeah, yeah and it's the shortest track on the album as well. Yeah, I mean, another reason for that is airplay you know we're conscious of that i mean from the last time you know there have been a couple of people say said to us that's like fucking you know <laughs> when people are you know doing radio shows or doing a um doing something or whatever a mixed cloud and then suddenly they get on a local digital radio station or something their show migrates to that then suddenly they're down from however long they want for the show to maybe they get an hour slot so they've got to be playing like three three and a half minute tracks you know yeah um, so, you know, the other idea was to come up with something short that would be like a soundbite for it, you know, yeah. even yeah. if it's a little bit misrepresentative in that um, it's not anything we probably ever play live, you know. Mm. Well, I mean, we hardly ever play live, so, I mean, well, does that really matter? Exactly. You know? exactly. Yeah, it'll, we, we'll get away with it. Yeah, it wouldn't be an issue. Exactly. You know, we'll play one more gig, maybe... There'll be a release gig. We're asked to play another Irish gig. Maybe we'll do that. And those songs will be gone. Yeah. Wow. Okay, last track, Mukbang. Um, the obvious one to finish the album. Steve, maybe you could take that? I, yeah, I, I think there was only... Yeah, I think I think we were all happy enough for this to be the ender. Yeah. Was there any debate over that, really? No, it was the last one in. It made yeah. sense to put the longest one at the end where we don't bore people, you know? Yeah. Um, we put long tracks at the beginning before and it's uh, it's not necessarily the greatest idea in the world, you know. It's mm. good to have uh, it. This was a great one for the end, though, because just because of the kind of the relentlessness and the, it's got kind of like a drive to it, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, everything everything kind of really fell into place for this one. There wasn't an awful lot of kind of thought put into the sequence, you know. Mm. Yeah, again, the vocals uh, really stand out on this. Okay, I'm gonna play it now.
a very fitting end to a superb album, lads. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And a big very shout out point. to Tommy O'Sullivan, who did a fantastic job mixing and mastering it and recording it. Um, you've used Tommy before. How did you come across him? Well, again, you were speaking. We were speaking earlier about kind of having an insular world. <clears throat> yeah. Myself and Andy, we, we played in a band previous. Well, it kind of ran parallel to this for a few years. And it, there'd be another lineup with myself and other people. But uh, Andy and Tommy played in the last lineup of that band for 10 years. Oh. So Tommy is just someone we already were playing with. So while Tommy was recording the early Earth albums, we were playing in a cell with him. So it just made sense to just follow it through. Basically, you know, he's a good engineer. He's one of our friends, you know, the price is right. He knows what we want to sound like. So, yeah, you know, that's it. Literally, Tommy is just someone that we've worked with for, like, since 2004. I've probably played music with him. Wow. And same, like, I've been playing with Andy for 20 years, probably, in different bands. So he's just one of those people who's in our little circle of uh, musicians, you know. The circle of trust. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's true. He works on other stuff we do, and yeah, yeah he's just always there, you know. What's great about working with Tommy as well is that he will probably he'll put a lot of extra work into like mixing stages and tweaking and all that sort of thing. Probably a little bit too much. I mean, it got to the stage there towards the end of this where <laughs> when we were going for a final mix where I had to ask him to stop. We had like eight different final mixes probably in one week, you know, and I would get to listen to them, you know, we're already, it's already difficult to listen to this music at this stage after you know, we don't sit down and listen to this and congratulate ourselves. I mean, it's the last thing in the world I want to hear. Mm. But, um, uh, you know, when somebody's sending you eight different mixes and there's something small and you, your ears are just broken, your brain is broken from listening to it. And you're going, I just don't, just stop. <laughs> Leave us alone, you know. One, you know, one mix every one and a half weeks, give us time, give it time for everybody to listen to it and decide what's different, you know. Mm. But, uh, no, that's, it's... Um, he went above and beyond in terms of, um, you know, really, really investing himself in the project. And like he always does, like yeah. this one in particular, you know, um, there's obviously, you know, there are things where it's a hugely beneficial to him in terms of, you know, broadening the way he kind of engineers records his approach to them and uh, he mastered it as well which was for us usually we would get another set of ears to do that mm. you know but um, we were kind of confident enough in Tommy to do it you know plus we didn't want to bring it to we didn't want to kind of like record an album like this and then bring it to, to a like a metal guy to master it or whatever you know I don't think it was I don't think that's um, it just didn't seem like the right thing to do with this. This it's, it just kind of like pushes it slightly in a into kind of like a sound or like a dynamic that it doesn't serve it that well, you know. It kind of look, you know, any mastering engineer they're going to kind of strip off anything that resembles a kind of a, like an older influence, you know. They're going to kind of it's just going to be all blocked out into this. Kind of well, it goes down to the, the trust element again and the good communication you have all got with Tommy, you know, so why change it? Why, 
there's no need to you know and like he's done such a good job mastering it now so you don't have to worry about it for the next album i presume yeah yeah well that's yeah. it you know and he's a uh, look like i said he's someone we've played with for a long time and we've played in and out of bands with and stuff so he knows what we're after he knows how we sound he's a exceptional guitarist himself he knows how it should be you know yeah you, you don't have to give him a terrible amount of uh, guidance it's only when, really when it gets down to mix and stages that you have to uh guide him more and that's usually left to the two lads once the drums sound okay i'm happy to leave the mix to them so they can figure out where they want all their little bits to go and which bits they want to be louder and quieter because uh, it's not for my ears, you know what I mean? I, I would hear it all completely differently, if yeah. that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Howard, there's a huge benefit of settling with a guy that a band can trust. You have it with Shawnee Cads. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the most fundamental thing for me with, with people like Tommy and so on is communication. And uh, being able to communicate what we're trying to say and have them understand and and react. But I, I think if you get into the business of telling people what to do, you're 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 fucked. You know, I think you have to trust somebody to to be good and competent at their job. And it sounds like he found someone like that and Tommy who just knows what he's doing, and you can kind of sit back and let him take what you've given him, and be confident that he's going to give it back to you in the shape that you wanted. You know, that's invaluable because you know, and it's great to hear he's sending you back eight mixes. It's the enthusiasm he must have for it. But um. I feel you on that one. I mean, we're in the middle of mixing um, the Paraton record at the moment, and I'm sick shit of it. Like, I'm sick to fucking shit of listening to the same five fucking songs over and over again, just to see does that snare have more reverb than that one? I don't care, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, it leaves you with a weird. It leaves you with a weird feeling about it because I mean, by the time you've got the thing out and you send it off, by the time it's back from the pressing plant, you're going, oh, well, I don't want to listen to this. Why would anybody want to listen to this? You have <laughs> not this. Okay, I mean, you don't have any confidence in it. It's just that the process of making it has made it completely repellent to you. You know, <laughs> I remember there's a great. Uh, you want to have a bit of enthusiasm when you're playing these songs, and I think if you listen to anything a hundred times. You're, you're going to be fatigued, you know. Yeah, it was always a great um, uh, thing that was requoted time and time again from an interview that Scott Walker did in the NME or something like that in the '90s, where uh, somebody was talking to him about referencing the kind of new avant-garde music he was making from Tilt onwards, and they were talking about, oh, it sounds like something, you know, there's elements of this from, I don't know, Scott Two or Scott Three in the late 60s or early 70s, and they were going, he was going, I don't know, and they were like, when was the last time you listened to that? And he goes, oh, when we did the, when we mixed it, I said, don't listen to any of my own music, you know, yeah. which was, uh, it was interesting, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, we have to go and play these songs now at the launch gig, but looking forward to kind of getting them out of the way and getting them out of, you know, I think we're all looking forward to getting them out of our brains, you know? Yeah. It was funny you were saying there as well about, um, you know, it's nice to not be in a situation where, you know, you have somebody telling somebody else what to do. I couldn't imagine that working. Imagine mm -hmm. me walking into your band practice and going, well, we're doing this now. This is, I think we just, we're all kind of on the same page in terms of the way that, music works and what is kind of it's not like necessarily what's acceptable in terms of we just have a way of working and that it works grand we don't push ourselves too hard we don't have any um i'd call it maybe outward ambition in terms of you know playing here and there and festivals and 
to attract attention to some fucking label or whatever or you know none of that but um yeah i think that um we've found ourselves in a really good position you know really happy with the way things are, are panning out because um it kind of adds to the kind of longevity of what we're doing you know and i think as well i think as a, we're definitely getting better as a band i mean that's very plain to see if we were getting worse or it was feeling tired um we would all know you know mm. but um it you know the fact that it's a comfortable thing to well not comfortable it can be downright uncomfortable but the fact that it's a an interesting thing to do it's a challenging thing to do but it's progressing and it's moving forward all the time um it keeps it really really interesting yeah. i think it keeps it, it you know it adds to you know the fact that you know we will probably you know who knows we might be still doing this in 10 years time you know mm. um because you know it's a very uh it's a band with a very slow metabolism and that kind of it benefits it benefits the band in every way it benefits the material it benefits you know our tolerance for it it benefits our just lives around it mm. and you know it, it feeds it you know it's a, i think it's a really good way of operating and strangely enough not an awful lot of people do this you know yeah um interesting the that longevity that's that's oh. occurred because that way thinking is 2006 to now is quite is quite a stretch of time i mean how many bands have come and gone in that period of time yeah. and to still be able to find enthusiasm it's clearly down to the way that you think outwardly about your music in the sense that you don't really care well i, I think like from here I, you know you find it in yourselves which is great i, I think like was said it uh, it helps to not have ambitions because we have found the bands that have been in that work hard not that york doesn't work hard but bands that would like tour a lot gig a lot mm. record a lot when people like are sick and can't rehearse or someone can't go on tour it kind of breeds a resentment mm. to a degree yeah. where you're like oh this fucking prick like you're meant to be doing this thing and now we can't and blah 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 and when you know that the goal is to just write and record an album every couple of years, it doesn't matter if, like, last week I couldn't rehearse and everything else grants the next week. Mm. Whereas if you were working towards gigs, it'd be an issue. If you were working towards a fucking tour, it'd be an issue. You know you know what I mean? It takes that away. It makes it a band that's fun. You go in and we write and we kind of fucking challenge ourselves. And yeah. There's a social aspect to it, I'm sure. You there's know, we, a fun element in this. I'm glad you said that, Bushy, because, you know, to hear you say that, it's great, man, because, I mean, you can definitely play around with, with your music. And when I was listening to it, I was kind of going, geez, the lads were having really good time trying to figure this out. And there's so many different changes and structural yeah. ups and downs with each song, man. And that's that must be fun to do. I mean, yeah, it is, man. I think it's funny. Look, I know we sit here and we like we're not going to say, oh, it's fucking complicated than this because we're too self-effacing. Mm. But it, it's like it is complicated, yeah. and there is enjoyment in figuring it out, and there is enjoyment in kind of the soil. Like basically, yeah, like we said earlier, Basel from him at a piece, and then me and Andy, it's almost like trying to decode the piece then and figure out. <laughs> Yeah. And we can put it in a in a structure that makes sense, you know. Yeah. And there is fun in it and kind of challenging yourself and pushing yourself. And it forces me as a drummer 
to play things that I wouldn't actually play. Like, you know, bits that are like seven over four or fucking having to play whole pieces in like uh, sixes and, mm. you know, trying to figure out how I can get to the end of a bar at the same time as what Boz considers the end of a bar because <laughs> what he's doing isn't conventional. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I have to stop when you stop, but it's not as many as I do in another band. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The beauty the beauty of not, um, you know, I guess the beauty of having no musical training and never having had any sort of lessons, not, you know, having to think about what the notes you're playing are, you know, mm. uh, anybody ever asked you, is that, you know, you're not, and, and just the way we operate as well is that stuff gets brought to the table that's kind of ridiculous, you know, but the beauty of it is that because we're not, it's not a band designed as any sort of band, we're not playing to genre, we're not playing to, a type we're not a, mm. anything you know it means that um you know anything that comes in goes into your mixer and it comes out as your music yeah. you know i mean whether or you know you mentioned gary newman earlier you know as a as a as something you heard in the music i mean that's it that's kind of interesting and in that it's nothing that i would have ever thought about in terms of your but i mean if we were to for instance you know uh two different ideas that we're trying to put together. Maybe one was kind of like something based on an idea, a Charles Mingus idea, and another one's based on Bathory or something. And they meet in the middle ground. It's not like we're trying to do uh, Mr. Bungle and throw them all into the same song and have the thing taken, you know, just weird left turns and stuff like that. That's not interesting, but there's a way to kind of blend all this stuff together. And, uh, you know, just kind of really, really random ideas or just strange kind of, you know, bass patterns and stuff like that. Just a lot of the time, you know, just bringing in things and going, I don't really know how to this, how this works. A lot of the time when I'm kind of putting something together, if I come in with something, there might be two different bass patterns that I want to put together that seem just completely ridiculous. When I'm in the process of writing, I'll bring them into band practice and go, can we just try this out for a minute? I want to see how this works or what the problems with it may be mm. before I go and write fucking nine minutes worth of music. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Around, you know? So, um, you know, that's, that, that to me is really, really interesting because I mean, I get to, uh, you know, it kind of, it kind of reminds me that there are certain kind of parameters in that a lot of the time we just, things that I kind of play around with at home just don't work when you put drums over them, you know? I try. Mm. We, we do try a lot of the time to kind of retain the weirdness of these things. Sometimes that might leave an extra note in there somewhere, you know? Um, but that's all. That's always really kind of interesting to me. I always find it uh, fascinating just to put stuff together and it's just, you know, that's the sort of kind of weird creativity where we're not kind of, you know, there's no pressure on us to go... Um, you know, we have to follow, con you know, changing trends in this type of music or that type of music, or now we have to go, now we have to sound like a fucking post-rock band, or now we have to sound like, uh, I don't know, whoever, a post-black metal band, or now we have to sound like a, you know, now we have to regress and sound like a 80s trash metal band now that there's kind of the threat of nuclear war again, you know? Right. So I mean, um, Steve has embraced the saxophone, man. Next, the next, yeah. uh, put a song 
on the next album, yeah. that will sound like uh, the J. Giles band in their Hall of Notes, you know? New, nuclear saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes, you know, certainly, um, you know, now that we, that's kind of, you know, available to us, the great thing is being able to kind of write um, something that has, you know, kind of very basic parts in it where there's space for those yeah. things to go in there. Because, I mean, obviously, if you're doing something noodly and obviously myself and Andy can, like, you know, come up with parts for bass and guitar and something that sits on top of the drums or whatever. But, you know, if you're bringing in an instrument like saxophone that, uh, you know, <clears throat> and it's it's basically a fresh instrument that nobody knows how to play, um, it's interesting to see what you can get out of it. And you can still get results from it, as you can see from the uh, the Book of Esophagus. Yeah. I mean, I love that sax break in the middle of it. You know, that's straight out of the kind of, straight out of the Stooges playbook, you know? Yeah. I was thinking in terms of just squeaking and squalling or early, back to early Hawkwind again, you know? There's, there's no fucking, I mean, I don't know, that Steve, Mc, Steve McQuay, Mc, I'll start the day and Steve McKay, is he a trained sax guy or is he a... Yeah, McKay was trained. Kind of a jazz guy? Yeah, he, he was, he came up to win the rhythm of blues. Okay. Mm. You know, but he was, he was also kind of, he played an awful lot of kind of avant-garde music. But yeah, the noise, the noise aspect of do, of using an instrument like that is, is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's absolutely brilliant to have it, you know? Yeah. It's a eternal benefit to us, especially when we're when we have uh, you know very obvious like jazz elements in the music. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah. Okay. So the album is coming out on the twelfth of November. Upgrade to obsolete. It's your five, and you can pre-order it through your Bandcamp page, lads. That'd be the easiest way going about it. Yeah. Yeah. Will you have copies available on the night? Because it's going to be launched on the 12th of November at the Bellow Bar in Dublin. Um, support will be from Objector Z, is it? Chrononaut? Objectors, yeah. And, um, Dr. Count Evil. Objectors and Dr. Count Evil and uh, Chrononaut. The wonderful Chrononaut. Um, yeah, the, the deal is you pay a tenner, you get the CD. Cool. There's no kind of like... We might, well, I guess we'll bring kind of stock up. Looks very red on the camera. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's the way we've always done it. It goes back, I guess that goes back to the kind of uh, kind of the DIY, the underground punk thinking as well. Is that, you know, you want people to hear the album, put it in their hands, you know. They're paying a tenner in the door. CDs don't cost a lot to make. I've seen bands do this thing of have a launch gig and then try and charge people for the, for, you know, 16 quid, 17 quid for the CD as well. There's no fucking chance, you know? I mean, on, on top of that, it's, you know, these things, what did, what's a CD cost to us? You know, they're probably about three quid a, a unit. We can afford to, to run a gig for a tenner and give them away to whoever's going to come in. I mean, we're not talking about hundreds of people, you know? It's a gig in the Bellow Bar in Dublin. What we do is, is, very cottage industry it's on a very very small level you know yeah. there's not going to be there's not going to be a queue of people you know outside that the only people well majority of the crowd will be outside the park like smoking and yapping such as the uh the nature of these mm. things you know but um yeah we just operate on a really small level and you know the cd gets to be part of the door price and 
we've always been really comfortable with that. It works well for us, you know. Um, I think it, it's a good deal, you know. Cool. Howard, anything else to say there? Well, more than anything, it's a fantastic album. And, you know, we listen to a lot of stuff here. We really do. We get sent things left, right and center. And, you know, I'd often, Rich would send me a fucking four-track EP and I'd listen to it once and just cringe and I'd make it 30 seconds into a couple of songs and it's hard going at times, I have to say. But this is the first one in a fucking long time. Um, I, like I said, I'm on a dozen listens at this point. I'm just instantly fascinated by it. Grew to like it a lot more as I've listened to True. And she's uh, a contender for album of the year for me at this stage. It really is. It's that fucking good to me. So I hope people listen to it, and I hope people understand that as as disparaging as you are about your own talents, this is this is the real this is real fucking music, really well performed by real fucking musicians. I don't, I think, we're head, I don't think we're know. disparaging about our own talents. I think we're like very happy with how we manage to kind of. Uh, Bluff to a certain level, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bluffing that like a fucking monkey. That's the honest truth. About, I mean, we do really, we do kind of really push ourselves to the point where I don't know whether you would call it punching above your weight or whatever. I mean, the thing about it is that it's kind of we just don't know what to expect when you put something out because I mean, we're not part of anything. We're not part of a scene. We're not part of a group of bands. We're not part of the Irish metal community we're not part of the punk thing there is no you know we're, we're pretty much on our own um we've you know maybe the lack of gigging and all the rest has really kind of isolated the band in a way you know i mean there are people who know who we are of course um from you know various places but uh you know when we, you put something out, out in the world like this you just don't know yeah. how it's going to be received you don't know what people are hearing when they hear it um, you don't know what the reaction is going to be and you don't know how it's going to be of any benefit to us. And that's the reason why we just kind of keep on moving forward with the blinkers on, you know? Mm, yeah, it's, you know, when black metal bands talk about cults, this is fucking cult. You know? mm. This is true, true cult. <laughs> we're, we're not recording it in our bedrooms wearing our mouths makeup, but it's true. See if I'll start there. No, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed. Mm. You, you both enjoying yeah. it, and that's that's nice to hear. Thank you. Mm. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, not only that, as you probably figured out as well, Boz is a talented artist, and he has a book, which I have here, and it's available, Boz, through your own website and it on Instagram under Boz Mugavi. That's just bozgallery.com, yeah. yeah. That's where the book was on sale, so yeah. For those listening, it's uh, Divine Turbulence. He's worked from 2004 to 2014, and it's a hardback book, and it's beautifully presented. And what was there, what price is on, on it at the moment, Boz? Do you remember? Um, I don't know. I keep on changing. Yeah. Really <laughs> good value. At the moment, probably, there's probably some deal where it's like 15 euro in Ireland or something like that. Um, you know, the price, like, keep on putting it down you know um i haven't looked at it in a while but um yeah it's there it's available you, you, it's not that difficult to find using a google you know so fair play to you man um, salute you on that one as well so listen lads thanks a million for coming on the show you've been listening to steve pause thank and you Mushy of your uh, really appreciate it no, thank you so much for your time thank you. really appreciate this yeah great stuff lads really is cheers man once again the album is out on 12th November 2022 and the launch gig please go to it if you're in Dublin no excuses 
Sunday, uh, 12th November in the Bellobar. Um, support again our objector Z, Chrono Knot, and Dr. Don Dooley. So, crucially, lads, support your local metal scene. Thanks for listening to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much.